very often when I speak about loving kindness, I tell a story about a friend and colleague of mine named Sylvia Borstein. Sylvia was leading a retreat with us in Barry on the east coast of the United States and then was going to fly home to San Francisco, the other coast of the United States. Her plane stopped in the middle of the country and then took off again in flight. She said about 40 minutes or so into that second flight, the pilot (coughs) got on the uh, public address system and said, there's really nothing to worry about, but the hydraulic system of the plane has developed a small problem and rather than fly over the Rocky Mountains without a fully functioning hydraulic system, we're going to turn around and go back and land in Chicago, where the plane had taken off from. Then he went on to say that the flight attendants would go around and instruct everyone in the proper position to take in the event of an emergency landing, and would collect everybody's shoes and eyeglasses and all of the pens out of their pockets, which I never quite understood completely. Uh, But somebody told me it might have something to do with what happens if you're forced to go down an emergency chute out of the airplane. And uh, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, so um, they did that. Sylvia was sitting there without any shoes, without any glasses, and she began to do the metta meditation. She did the phrases toward the people that she was closest to, is closest to in this life. That is, her husband, her children, their spouses, and her grandchildren. She would just begin with her husband and say those phrases, expressing her connection and care and closeness for these beings, going down through the list to her youngest grandchild, and then begin again with her husband. Now, she also said that, for some reason, the pilot would keep getting back on the, uh, the PA system and would say, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes. We're going to be landing in 30 minutes. We're going to be landing in 25 minutes. And each time he would do that, she would have this moment of, of fear, and then she would just go back to doing the loving kindness in just that way. Then the pilot got on the PA system and said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. At that point, Sylvia thought, well, in five minutes, either I'll still be alive or I'll be dead. And as she turned her mind to the loving kindness, what she discovered was that, in fact, she couldn't do it in the way she had just been doing it for all 35 previous minutes limiting that sense of connection and care, non-separateness, to those people in her immediate family. She found that with the thought, oh, maybe I'll be dead in five minutes, the only way she actually could do the loving-kindness practice was toward all beings everywhere, without limit, without boundary, without any sense of separation. So she did that for five minutes. And then the plane landed. She said it was a landing just like any other landing. And they fixed whatever and took off again. But I tell that story so often because I love that the sense of that moment when she just couldn't. She couldn't create a barrier. She couldn't draw a separation. She couldn't draw a line in the sand and say, okay, here are the chosen few on this side that I will care about, and everyone else is the other, somehow, on the other side of the line. She just couldn't. And it wasn't something self-conscious, and it wasn't something um, deliberate, it wasn't something put on, it wasn't something pretentious. It wasn't that she sat there and thought, well, you know, I'm a Buddhist meditation teacher, and I really should you know, at this point, with maybe only five minutes left to live, I should uh, try to send loving kindness to all beings everywhere. I don't really want to, but, you know, given that that's my persona, 
I really should. It wasn't like that at all. She just couldn't. And in a way, from that moment, I get the feeling of how much energy, how much effort we actually exert a lot of the time in upholding those barriers and those sense of senses of division, separation. That's actually effort. What startled me so much and amazes me continuously about that, that sense of division, of drawing the line between the chosen, cherished few and the other is how often we ourselves are on the other side of the line. It's like we, in a way, can easily be other to ourselves. And I love that sense of not doing that because it's actually a doing. It's a construction. It's a creation of division. And I love the sense of how natural it is with seeing things in a certain way not to do it. That's why I often call loving kindness not a feeling, although sometimes I use that word inadvertently, though I don't mean to, not so much a feeling, but more a radical sense of our non-separateness. It's a vision. It's a view. It's a way of seeing ourselves, a way of seeing life, a way of using our attention. Thinking quite reasonably we might only have five minutes to live can bring us to that. Seeing more clearly in any circumstance can bring us to that. For all the years of my um, Buddhist career, my Buddhist meditative career, I was always told something like, love and compassion are our more natural state. And I always used to think, well, maybe, I don't know. But what I began to notice through all of these years, and I still observe it, and it it is very impactful for me every time I observe it, is that there doesn't ever seem to be a time when I see things more clearly, when I understand myself or somebody else more deeply, when I see more clearly all of the circumstances or conditions that have led up to somebody, either myself or someone else, behaving in a certain way, There has never been a time when I have had greater wisdom or greater understanding and that has led to more of a feeling of separation and distance and being cut off and disconnected and not caring. There has never been a time when seeing more clearly has not led to greater love and compassion, whether for myself or for someone else. I've just seen that again and again and again and again. So I finally began thinking, maybe it's true. Maybe this is a more natural state. If this is what wisdom brings us to, if this is what clear seeing brings us to, if this is what more or greater information brings us, tr- brings us to, maybe it is true. If this is our more natural state. If that's so, then a practice such as this is really about recovering that capacity, feeling more at home in it, trusting it more, whether directed toward ourselves or directed toward others. There is this very interesting and profound relationship between awareness and connection, or awareness and compassion, awareness and loving kindness. I mentioned this briefly and we'll see it much more clearly I think as we pay attention to the neutral person. And here is somebody who has not done anything for us. They've not been particularly generous toward us or good to us. We may not know their story. We may not even know their name. But if we pay attention to them, if they cease to be an object, if they cease to be the other, then what we discover is a tremendous sense over time, not right away, of course, but over time, of some kind of connection, 
of some kind of real caring, even maybe never learning their name or never learning their story. Here is a generic living being, and because we pay attention to them, we recognize they are not the other. I have a friend who, many years ago, went to Sikkim, uh, which at that time was uh, a protectorate of India, and it took quite a bit of uh, government permission and so on to get there. He went to visit a very great Tibetan Lama, uh, whose title was the Karmapa, who was extremely eminent and renowned as a teacher. So my friend went to Sikkim, got all of the permission and did the whole thing and did what one had to do in those days, maybe these days too, I don't know, but like rent a jeep and ford rivers and go over mountain passes and this whole thing. And he finally got there and he said that the Karmapa related to his arrival as though it were just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life not through great pomp and circumstance and um, grandiose gestures, but actually through the quality of undivided attention. My friend said that the Karmapa paid such complete attention. He was so wholehearted, so full in his presence with him that my friend said the subjective, the inner experience was one of being completely loved just because he was so present. And I heard that story, and I thought about how many conversations I am engaged in, or I'm sort of there and sort of thinking about the next thing I have to do, or the next person I have to talk to, or a telephone call I forgot to make, and, and really how, how unfortunate, because just, being present is like a gift of love because our awareness, our attention is very tied into, into that gift. One of the reflections that we do in the beginning of the loving-kindness practice, which we'll begin doing tomorrow, also has to do with how we use our attention and its relationship to our capacity to love and to connect. And that is a reflection on seeing the good or seeing goodness in people, beginning with ourselves. We actually sit down and reflect on something good that we've done, maybe a very small act of kindness or remembering somebody or maybe even being careful not to tell a lie when it would have been very easy, just maybe maybe a small thing. Or we reflect on a good quality, something we like about ourselves, not for the purpose of developing conceit or pride, but really uh, to feel the joy of the potential for goodness and that that exists within us as well. It said that metta most easily arises when we see the good in someone. And this is not meant to be another force of delusion, trying to pretend that that's all that's there. But even if we are looking at someone else and we see, we turn our attention, our awareness, to what is just a tiny sliver of good in an ocean of negativity, Recognizing that good is what forms the link. We can then look honestly and directly at all of the difficulty, but it's more the way we would with a friend, actually. Most of us, if not all of us, have friends that have the capacity to behave very badly sometimes. Can we view all of that as those standing side by side, rather than across this great gap of self and other. So we look for the good in people. Now, when I first got this instruction, I was in Burma. It was that first period when I did loving-kindness practice intensively. And I heard this, and my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. 
I thought, that's what stupid people do. They just go around, they look for the good in everybody, and they, you know, they walk around really deluded. And um, I thought, I'm not going to do that. I don't even like people like that, you know, who just go around all the time, look for the good. I'm not going to do it. But there I was in Burma. I was very far from home. I was in a very constrained uh, situation in this retreat center. I was having interviews with my teacher six days a week, and there wasn't a whole lot of choice except to do what the instructions were. So I actually began to do it. And it amazed me because it worked for me in exactly the way it was described. Not to uh, just pull a curtain across my eyes or to make me forgetful or stupid or ridiculous, but to have a sense of connection, even with myself, rather than the sense of estrangement, of being apart. And that really is the intrinsic nature of metta. It's known as the cohesive factor. That which unveils, you might say, our oneness, our togetherness, rather than our separateness. So how we use our attention is very important. And it's true. There may be times either looking at ourselves or looking at someone else it seems impossible to find any goodness at all. That's true. And then there's another reflection that we do, which is from a very simple saying of the Buddha when he said that everybody, all beings everywhere, want to be happy. And that very, very few know how. In the legend that surrounds the Buddha's enlightenment, it said that uh, after his enlightenment, he was sitting happily under the tree that he'd been sitting under for his enlightenment, sheltered by for his enlightenment. And he had a kind of feeling that people would not really appreciate what he had to say. And so he wasn't going to teach. He wasn't going to offer the teachings. And it's said that, as the legend goes, a celestial being came down from the heaven world and asked the Buddha to use his psychic vision to survey the universe, hoping that what he would see would inspire him to teach. And in fact, it did. And what he saw that was so inspiring was not, according to the story, the extent and the variety and the duration of people's suffering but the fact that everybody everywhere wanted to be happy and so very few had a clue as to how happiness could be found. And seeing that, it is said, motivated the Buddha to begin to teach. Everybody just wants to be happy. And if we look at the roots of any action, somewhere in there, Even the most terrible addiction or most awful violence, somewhere in there, in a twisted, confused, awful way perhaps, but in there is that wish to be happy. And all of us, because of ignorance, continually make mistakes that cause tremendous suffering for ourselves or for others. But all of us just want to be happy. That's why we can turn our attention to ourselves and honor that wish to be happy, which in some ways is the most beautiful part of us. Not to consider it something shameful or something to be timid about or uneasy about, but rather to understand we should be happy. And if that wish to be happy, that urge toward happiness, can be combined with wisdom rather than with ignorance, which it normally is, then it becomes like our homing instinct for freedom. Then it can help us cut through any obstacles out of great love and compassion for ourselves. It's a very beautiful thing. And that's how we can turn our attention to a neutral person, not knowing anything about them, or a difficult person, or ultimately to all beings everywhere, and know that they also, they want to be happy. To know where happiness truly lies, takes tremendous courage and an ability to step outside of our conditioning, to be very honest, and to continually look. 
to be able to pay very careful attention. It takes a lot to understand where happiness actually is. But this urge, this basic urge, is part of what unites us. A few years ago, I went to Israel to teach. And I had two very uh, interesting experiences before the retreat actually started, when I was just staying in Jerusalem. The first experience, uh, which was very funny, really, was walking through the marketplace in Jerusalem, in the old city, which is a very uh, complex set of narrow alleyways with a lot of market stalls and colors and sounds and goods for sale. And it's a place really very teeming with life. And I was walking with some friends through the marketplace when one of the uh, stall keepers shouted out to me, I have what you need. And I can remember it was like this thrill went through my entire body and I stopped and I went, wow, he has what I need. And I actually stopped and I began turning around and walking back toward the, the particular market stall when I had one of those moments of enlightenment and I thought, wait a minute. First of all, how would he know he has what I need? And second of all, I don't need anything. But I think about our world, and certainly this is true for America, I can't really say how it is in other cultures, but it's like that voice is crying out to us all of the time in all directions, like, I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And if only you turned around and bought my souvenir, you could have final, abiding, perfect, unchanging happiness forever. And we hear that. It's like it's this this shouting going on all of the time, and our conditioning has us believe it. We just spin around and around and around because the voices are coming from all directions. We do so much want to be happy, and that is natural. But we need to understand that what happens from that message being shouted out at us all of the time is that we begin to believe we really do need that thing and that thing and that thing and that thing. and We objectify people as things, and it becomes that same relationship of feeling this tremendous sense of deficit and need and lack, imagining that something outside is going to fill it, if we can only hold on to it tight enough, if we can only procure it fast enough and then the next thing, and then the next thing. So we need to separate that, the joy and the beauty of that urge toward happiness from all of those confusing messages we've gotten about where happiness is to be found and be willing to, to take that journey, to have that adventure, to see for ourselves. The other experience I had in that same period of time in Jerusalem, was I went to the Western Wall, once known as the Wailing Wall, which is a very sacred site in Judaism, where the custom is to write out your prayers and to place them in a crack in the wall. So I did that. I did that very much in the spirit of loving kindness. Um, I had many friends who were going through difficult times right then, and so I just wrote out my meta wishes for them on this piece of paper and I placed it in a crack in the wall. And then I made an assumption which I actually didn't even recognize until I'd already gotten home and was having a conversation with somebody about this whole experience. The assumption that I made was that it was a better thing if the piece of paper stayed in the crack in the wall. Somehow I thought it was a bad sign if it were to fall to the ground. So given that assumption, the day after I placed the piece of paper, I went back there to check. So I looked around, and I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people come to there every day, every single day, and do exactly what I did, place a piece of paper in a crack in the wall. 
But somehow, and this was the real miracle, I found my piece of paper. And it was still in there. So I felt really good. I thought, oh, great. You know, it's still in there. That's a good thing. Then I came back the next day to check. (laughs) And I saw a piece of paper. I wasn't so sure. Um, I thought it was mine, but I wasn't positive, and I felt some uneasiness over that. I went away, I came back the next day, and that day I definitely couldn't find my piece of paper, and I was getting quite upset and, and confused when I had another one of those enlightenment experiences, and I realized it doesn't matter. Not only does it not matter whether the piece of paper falls to the ground or stays in the wall, but it actually do- didn't matter because my piece of paper was no different from anybody else's. It felt like there was a universal cry going up on all those pieces of paper, wanting happiness, wanting peace, wanting some sense of belonging to something greater than our limited lives, wanting some sense of being at home in our lives rather than so estranged. It felt like everybody was saying exactly the same thing. And so we are, in a way. That everybody really wants to be happy. There's a, a beautiful poem by a uh, New England poet named Galway Cannell that reflects very much this sense of loving kindness. The name of the poem, and this is just a fragment of the poem, is St. Francis and the Sow. And he says, The bud stands for all things even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. So sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. I think of that so many times in terms of the nature of metta, to reteach a thing its loveliness, beginning with ourselves, as we look for the good, because it's there. This doesn't mean that it's easy, that it's an easy reflection to do, or that it's an easy practice to do. And yet, there's a kind of naturalness to it, because it's truthful at the same time. It's not a pretense, and it's not something that we just put on. It is a capacity that we have to connect, to connect to ourselves, and that means all aspects of ourselves, including the anger and the grief and the rage and the fear. It means connecting to all beings everywhere, including those we don't like and perhaps would never go near in order to protect ourselves. It's a capacity of the heart. It doesn't dictate a certain kind of behavior. I have another friend who's another colleague. Her name is Kamala Masters, and she lives in Hawaii. She told me a story once about a time when she went sailing with some friends in Hawaii around one of the islands, and she became quite seasick. Her friends urged her to jump off of the sailboat into the water to to get some relief from feeling so sick. She was somewhat reluctant to do that because she's not a very good swimmer and there was no life vest. But her friends said, well, don't worry, we'll jump off with you and, and that will be okay. So they jumped off the boat and she was in the water with these people when all of a sudden a giant gust of wind came and blew away the sailboat. So Kamala's in there in the water, and her friends, probably out of kindness, kept saying things. She was really terrified. She became frantic you know, and afraid she was going to die. And Her friends said to her, Okay, Kamala, what if this is the end of your life? What would you like now more than anything? Wouldn't you like more love in your heart? And wouldn't you like more compassion in your heart? And what do you want now more than anything? And Kamala thought for a moment and she said, What I want now more than anything is the boat. (laughs) Which I really appreciate. (laughs) 
because this whole process is not about adopting that sweet persona of obligatory loving-kindness. It is about a truthful capacity and the ability to pay attention, to open our awareness, to connect. Having written, my first book was called Loving-Kindness, and I used to joke that maybe my second book would be called The Tyranny of Loving-Kindness. It would be the companion shadow volume. But it's not meant to be tyrannical. It's not something we put on. If anything, it's something we discover as we take off all of those layers of conditioning of who we think we are and what we're capable of and what we can know and what we can open to and still be strong. The practice of metta or loving-kindness is traditionally taught in the context of four practices altogether. And these are known as the Brahma-viharas. Brahma is a Pali word that means celestial or supreme or divine. And one translation I've heard of it that I liked quite a lot is the word best. Vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are like our best home. All of these qualities inspire and deepen our sense of connection to each other and to life. One of my friends who lives and works in New York City and teaches used the example of people traveling one day in New York City on a subway and some Martians come from outer space and zap the subway so that all of the people in that subway car are bound to one another for eternity. No one can leave, and that will never change. And he said, given that, what do people do? Really, we have to then take care of one another, because there we are together, whether we like it or not. That's just the way it is. If somebody is freaking out, calm them down. If somebody's hungry, you feed them. Because there's no getting away from it. In that situation, we're all so intertwined, interrelated, interconnected. And so it is, in fact. When our vision of life and what life is grows enough, we see the boundlessness of these connections and how awesome it is that really we have to take care of one another because it's the simple truth of things. I sometimes think one of the things I enjoy about teaching loving-kindness practice is how many people are actually on the retreat, because already we have ourselves and our benefactors, and then we'll have our friends and our neutral people and our difficult people and all these different groups. And anyway, we all bring these people with us, no matter what, because... How many people in some way were involved in your being here? From the Buddha on down. People in your life who've been helpful to you. People in your life who've been hurtful to you. But because of that particular difficulty, you made some choices. And those choices somehow led you here and beyond. There's real a lot of beings in this room right now very intertwined. And the people who made these cushions and got this place and sustained this place and made our clothes and grow our food. It's a lot of beings that we've each brought with us. When we wake up, we see in one way or another we are part of this vast net of interconnections. The first of the Brahma-viharas, or the best homes, is that state of loving-kindness, which we've been talking about so much. And it is said, as I mentioned you know, a little while ago, the easiest way to realize loving-kindness 
is either to see the goodness in someone or to recognize that universal wish to be happy. The second of the Brahma Viharas is the state of compassion, which as translated from the Pali literally means the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It's not that we can ever come to a state and it's not that we are wishing in the course of doing loving-kindness for the complete end of all pain because life is what it is. There's pleasure and pain, there's gain and loss, and there's continual change with all these, these elements being outside of our control. But how we respond to the pain is what is really crucial, whether it's our own or somebody else's. Do we strike out against it in hatred? We don't want to see it. Do we need to deny it? Do we need to repackage it so it looks like something it's not? Can we open to it? And can we open to it with wisdom? Can we open to it with that trembling of the heart that doesn't shatter, that doesn't break? When I first went to Russia to teach, I had this very funny experience because it was, all, this was a long time ago, it was the Soviet Union and everything was translated. And I spoke a lot about compassion. And every time I said the word compassion, it was subsequently translated, I get this really funny feeling. Like there was just this funny air in the room. So finally I sat down with the translator and I said, well, when I say compassion, what do you say? And he described the state where he said, oh, it's just you're overcome and shattered by this pain and it feels like a stake has been driven through your heart. And he went on and on and on. And I kept thinking, well, no wonder, you know, I have this really funny feeling. Compassion as as talked about in the Buddhist teaching, is a state of some sufficiency or wholeness where we see and feel and face the pain directly, completely. But the feeling, the the knowing of unification is so strong that there's support, that there is oneness, there's wholeness, there's integrity in that. And so we're not broken by it. What gives rise to compassion is the seeing of suffering with understanding, with wisdom. And as Thich Nhat Hanh once said, I think quite brilliantly, compassion is a verb. It's the trembling, it's the quivering of the heart. It's something we do. No matter what form the action takes, it's an actual movement within us. The third of the Brahma Viharas, or divine abidings or best homes, is a state of sympathetic joy, which means that we actually take delight, we rejoice, we're very happy when others are happy. And this is really hard. (laughs) All four of these states of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, which is the last, sympathetic joy is commonly felt to be the most difficult. Most of us, in terms of compassion, whether for ourselves or for others, for mo- not in every instance, but in many instances, it's a question of seeing more clearly. If we could see the pain of this being, if we could see our own pain, rather than calling it bad or wrong or evil, then our hearts would move in that way. But to actually take delight when someone else is happy is very difficult. I don't know if you've ever had the situation where something really good has happened for you. You've had some good fortune or success or something wonderful has just happened in your life. And seeing how different people react to that is very interesting. When people are really happy for you, genuinely happy for you, it feels like such an enormous thing. It's such a beautiful thing that they are really happy for you. And if people are envious or jealous or belittling of 
of your state, whatever it is, it feels so bad. But what an incredible thing to actually align oneself with the happiness of others. Mostly, we seem to have some kind of feeling of the limitation of happiness as a commodity. It's like if we feel happiness is really limited in this world, maybe it's contained in that object that man was trying to sell me in the streets of Jerusalem, then we are necessarily in competition with other people. The more that somebody else has, the less is going to be left over for us. And so someone else's joy or success or happiness seems to take away from our own. But when we break down that idea that happiness is so limited, it's contained somewhere, that fixation, that narrow definition, then the world opens up. And then we see that someone else's happiness doesn't take away from ours. It actually is ours. It's not different. And so to practice sympathetic joy, we actually practice happiness and taking delight in our own happiness, being able to take joy in being out here in nature and seeing flowers grow and seeing the small things, not overlooking that, not forgetting that. The way the Dalai Lama expresses it is quite funny. He says, There's so many other people in this world, it simply makes sense to make their happiness as important as our own, because then our chances of delight are enhanced six billion to one. (laughs) Those are very good odds. (laughs) That's the third of the Brahma Viharas. Then the fourth is the state of equanimity, which in some ways is the unspoken thread throughout everything that we do here. Each of these practices touches upon all of the others and contains them. So uh, in focusing on loving kindness, we're not overlooking the others, but we're incorporating them in some way. And equanimity is, is the foundation of them all because equanimity is the voice of wisdom. It's equanimity which says life is as it is that there's pleasure and pain, there's gain and loss, there are ups and downs, there are changes outside of our control, and that we need to be in harmony with that. We need to live in peace with that in some way. If we can live in peace with that, then both for ourselves and for others, we can actually be more fully present. It's a kind of strange irony in a way. It doesn't make total rational sense. But the fact is that if we have a kind of equanimity, then our loving kindness, both in practice and in action in life, can be more boundless. It can be more patient. Otherwise, we can easily offer the sense of loving kindness with some expectation. Like, would you get happy already? You know, or would you get happy now? I've been sending you loving kindness all week. You know, I went away and I devoted the entire week to you and you're still suffering. Or, I will love you as long as. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. I never fail. I never do wrong. It's equanimity that allows loving kindness not to have that kind of agenda. To go through the ups and the downs. To be more boundless. To be more patient. We say that it's equanimity that endows compassion with courage. Because how do we open to pain? Genuinely open to it without being shattered without feeling as though a stake has been driven through our hearts. Because that feeling, while natural, doesn't serve many beings if we're overcome, if we're lost in bitterness, if we're broken. It doesn't really serve ourselves and it doesn't really give us the energy to serve others. So how do we 
see pain and know pain and feel pain and keep giving anyway. It's only equanimity that has that strength. And it's equanimity that allows us to feel sympathetic joy at all. It's the voice of wisdom that shows us that there will always be these changes in life, that happiness is not going to finally be procured if you turn around in the marketplace in Jerusalem and grab that thing before someone else can get it. It's equanimity that helps sympathetic joy be more boundless because we don't feel so threatened and we don't feel so envious. Tremendous capacity to connect actually blossoms with that, with that practice. And we do all four of these really contained within the loving kindness. They're all a part of what we're doing here together. It said that the practice practices of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity work primarily on the level of our being, which is the power of intention in the mind. And this is an extremely important understanding. It's very subtle and it's also very powerful. According to the Buddha's teaching, the intention that gives rise to an action or the motivation that gives rise to an action is the most potent part of that action. It's where our deepest values are, our heart's commitment is, our sense of purpose is, even our momentary um, urges are. And only we can know our motivation because the very same action can be born out of many different motives. So that if I reached down and handed somebody this book, Maybe I'm doing it because I think, oh, well, you have a book I really want. You know, if I give you this one, maybe you'll give me that one. Or maybe I'm doing it because I'm doing it in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think of me a certain way. Or maybe I'm doing it because I really like you and I want you to have the book. Or maybe I really feel a lot of compassion for you and I want you to have the book. Or many, many, many different possibilities. All anybody else sees is my hand going down and lifting up the book and moving it forward. One might have a good guess what someone else's motive is, but we can't really know. Only we, ourselves, can know about our own motivations. And that's an area of tremendous exploration. What is the intention that's given rise to this action? So that the Buddha first taught loving-kindness as the antidote to fear. And so, rather than primarily feeling at home in fear, acting from motivations, intentions of fear, that gets transformed. And one acts from, feels at home, primarily moves from a place of connection or friendship rather than fear. So it's in that realm that the transformation takes place. What gives rise to our actions? Instead, the very first time the Buddha is talked about having taught metta, there's a, a legend surrounding that as well. It's said that he uh, sent a group of monks off to a forest to meditate, and the forest happened to be inhabited by tree spirits who did not like the presence of the monks. They resented them greatly, and so they tried to drive them away uh, by frightening them. And they made these, these terrible, ghoulish sounds and created these awful smells and terrible images. And in fact, the monks became absolutely terrified and they ran away. They ran back to the Buddha and they said, Oh Lord Buddha, please, whatever you do, don't send us back to that same forest. Send us somewhere else. And the Buddha said, I'm going to send you back to the same forest, but I'm going to give you the only protection that you will ever need. And that was the first teaching of loving-kindness. He taught what is known as the Metta Sutta, 
a discourse and told the monks, go back there and don't just recite it in an empty kind of way, but actually practice it. Practice this force of loving kindness. So the monks did that, and as these stories all end so happily, it said that when the monks got back to the forest and they were extending the sense of loving kindness, the tree spirits became so happy to have them there and with all that loving energy that they decided to feed them and serve them and take care of them. And I'm sure all the monks got fully enlightened because these stories do tend to end very, very happily. But it's in the power of intention that we see this tremendous purification and manifestation happen. Once when I was teaching someplace, somebody came to me and said that she had had a really very difficult year of a lot of pain, a lot of loss, a lot of tragedy. It had been a really horrible year. And the only thought that had really kept her going, had given her some strength throughout the year, was the thought that somewhere in the world somebody was doing metta practice for all beings everywhere and that she was a being. And therefore, she was receiving some loving intention, some loving care from someone in the world at all times. And it wasn't because she'd been particularly good to this person or she deserved it in a conventional way, that she had done something to deserve it. It's simply because she existed, because she was. And I was so moved when she said that. I thought, how beautiful, really, because it's true, that at any point in time, somewhere in this world, because of a person's particular personal dedication, they are extending loving kindness to all beings everywhere, and that every single one of us is receiving it at any given time. And that we, in turn, can be sending it or offering it Sending is another little funny concept, like feeling. We can be opening to it, offering it, extending it. And that it actually makes a difference. Because we can get quiet enough to recognize that. That we are all interconnected. And that if we open our minds to that channel of energy, which is existent within us and without and we can recognize that, and we can recognize our non-separateness in that. I'll close with this quotation that um, is from the Buddha. It's actually, uh, it was on the very first brochure we ever put out uh, at the retreat center, the Insight Meditation Society. And it goes, The thought manifests as the word, The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. I've liked that quotation always because of that phrase, and let it spring from love rather than make it spring from love or force it to spring from love or act like it's springing from love, whatever you do. But just let it spring from love because actually we can. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.